Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. If you've joined me before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. At the Logical Christian Podcast, we look at what's going on in the world of current events, politics, science, and whatever the mainstream media feels is important to tell us, but rather than just accepting their spin and swallowing their narrative, we look at it logically, and we look at it as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you want to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. Look, I know I usually have three article reviews per episode, but I wanted to get these out to you. They're both a little longer, and I wanted to respect your time. I'm trying to think of you and your feelings. What else do you want from me? Please don't say a third article review in this episode. Please don't say a third article review in this episode. Don't worry. We'll get back to the normal format in the next episode. Anyway, in a world of have it your way, designer this, or custom that, we've been spoiled to get things exactly how we want them, or else we send it back. We literally have the right to have our every whim catered to, and apparently this is extended to God as well. Now, in the past, if someone wanted to worship not God, they just make their own God. Sure, there is some adjusting of God in some of the Christian cults, but we've moved into some interesting new blasphemous territory where the woke culture— those that couldn't possibly care any less about God, and those that hate God with every fiber of their being, which is ironically being held together by God, have turned into the seagulls from Finding Nemo. You know, mine, mine, mine. And in keeping with the times, they don't want the God those old fuddy-duddies talked about in the hateful chauvinistic Bible, you know, written by a bunch of white men, they've decided to update God, to create God in their own image, as it were. So, today, we're going to talk about two things. First, we'll learn about how God apparently has a deep-seated hatred of babies, and after that, we'll learn about how Jesus just hates, I guess, everyone else. Well, at least everyone that doesn't fit the correct political mold, that is. So, grab a pad of paper and a stack of sharpened number two pencils, Get ready to make a tally mark for every heresy and blasphemy you hear. I hope you're fast at making tally marks, because by the grace of God go we here. Delusional. Having false or unrealistic beliefs or opinions. Maintaining fixed false beliefs, even when confronted with facts, usually as a result of mental illness. Evil. Morally wrong or bad. Psychosis a mental disorder characterized by symptoms such as delusions or hallucinations that indicate impaired contact with reality. Murder, from the world's view, the killing of another human being under conditions specifically covered in law. Murder, the biblical view, the intentional taking of a human life. Damned, condemned or doomed, especially to eternal punishment. These are some definitions that you're probably going to want to know. A few other terms to keep in mind. False convert, false gospel, social gospel, father of lies, angel of light, the pause button, you may need this, a drool rag for when you don't realize that your jaw has been laying on your chest, and duct tape, You may want to pre-wrap your head for nothing else than to keep all the pieces together for all the king's horses and all the king's men to give their best shot at putting your skull back together again. 
Found on APNews.com headline, Religious Backers of Abortion Rights Say God's on Their Side. Huh? Close your mouth. Your drool rag isn't big enough to start that yet. (laughs) Trust me, I I know this uh, personally. Now, this is a longer article. I'm going to try to keep this review as short as I can. We'll see how that goes. I, I make no promises. But you need to read this thing. It's, well... Refer back to the definitions I just gave you. It's delusional. It's psychosis. It's evil. Let's take a look. The article basically follows a couple people, one in particular in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, mild stomping grounds, sort of, at the abortion clinic just down the road from the University of Alabama. The clinic has 11 staff members. The AP describes as, quote, most of them black, deeply faithful Christian women who have no trouble at all reconciling their work with their religion. Ramona, a recovery nurse, you know, recovering from just having an abortion, on her lunch hour, pulls out her Bible and reads, and this is a direct quote from the AP article, quote, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. Her favorite proverb says, and she returns to it again and again, He will make your path straight. Now that's Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, but curiously they left out the first part of 6, which kind of snuggles right between those two fragments, which reads, In all your ways acknowledge him. Him being God, of course. Curious why they left that little bit out of the story, but let's move on. Ramona, who believes God led her to the job at the abortion clinic, says that she trusts in God. Now, outside the clinic, the protesters are, quote, bellowing, quote, doing battle against what they regard as a grave sin. One protester that Ramona tried to reason with on multiple days finally told her that when she dies, she's going to hell, so she doesn't talk to him anymore. The protesters are, quote, sometimes aggressive, quote, they have screamed, they have, quote, recorded biohazard bins being carted away, They have, quote, called police if a patient lashes out when they tell them they're going to hell. And yet, with all this abject hatred and violence, they only have one picture in the article of a single older woman holding a sign quietly, which reads, it's okay to change your mind. So, you know, violence. And if someone were to lash out at me for just saying something, I may call the cops also. That's called assault. That's not legal. And can we just call the biohazard bins what they are? Baby part containers? I mean, that's going to be our primary waste material, right? Alicia Horton, the director of the Killing Fields, said of the protesters, quote, I don't know what Bible they're reading, because it's not the one that I read. <laughs> oh, Ms. Horton, of that I am more sure of than you can possibly imagine. Anyway, that's the scene outside. Let's head back into the mill. Of course, the author makes the obligatory statement, speaking in reference to the women working at the abortion clinic, quote, As the U.S. Supreme Court appears poised to dismantle the constitutional right to an abortion, they draw on their faith that they will somehow continue. God is on our side, they'll tell each other. God will keep this clinic open. (sighs) Y'all smell that? (sighs) Smells like blasphemy. So, can we just get one thing straight, really quick here? There is no constitutional right to an abortion. Roe did not codify abortion rights into the Constitution. It was very, very loosely affiliated with a single amendment, and since then has just been regarded as 
precedent. Precedent isn't law, and that's the problem with Roe. It's simply not a law. It's a legal opinion, a very fragile legal opinion. It's not law because not even fully democratically controlled chambers of Congress and a democratic president have tried to get it codified into law until recently because we've never been at a point where the left has felt so free to display their murderous evil for everyone to see. Thankfully, their little ploy to get people on record as to if abortion should be legal up to the second before birth appears to have backfired, as even Democratic voters have recognized that uh, that's going a little too far. Let's continue. The article jumps for a moment to Robin Marty, a woman who moved from Minneapolis to Tuscaloosa to help run the clinic. Now remember, the premise of the article is that you can be a Christian and murder, I'm sorry, abort babies. Keep that in mind. Robin was shocked that the people claiming to be Christians were working at the clinic. She said, quote, That is one of the things that has caused a whiplash for me. I had this stereotype in my head of a southern religious person, said Marty. I just assumed that there was no compatibility between people who are religious and people who support the ability to get an abortion. Bingo! Right! Robin Marty has it right. There is zero compatibility. But of course, she quickly embraced the religious women that she very likely considered her mortal enemies while in the ever-deepening and widening hellhole that is the Twin Cities. A third woman, Kendra Cotton, is brought into the mix now. She's a member of the Black Southern Women's Collective, which is a network of black women's organizations, many of them faith-based. She said, quote, We need to have a real conversation about what we describe as Christianity. Oh, oh my, yes, I, I would say that we really do. She went on to say, quote, We know that Christianity supports freedom, and inherent in freedom is bodily autonomy. Inherent in Christianity is free will. When people talk about the body being a temple of God, you have purview over your body. There is nothing more sacred. The idea of the state restricting what a person can do with their own body is in direct conflict with that, and it is reminiscent of being under someone else's control. Of slavery. You don't get to tell me what to do. Yes, let's come back to that in a moment. The article moves into the fact Fact, I say, that being against abortion is actually racist. I mean, how could it not be, right? Also coming from Ms. Cotton's deceiving, venomous, open grave. I'm sorry, I mean her mouth. Quote, the white evangelical worldview that abortion is murder has consumed the conversation, flattening the understanding of how religion and views on abortion truly intersect. Before Roe v. Wade, faith leaders in many places led efforts to help pregnant women access underground abortions because they considered it a calling to show compassion and mercy to the most vulnerable. Now black Protestants have some of the most liberal views on access to abortion. Nearly 70% believe abortion should be legal in most or all cases, according to the Public Religion Research Institute. White evangelicals are the other extreme, with only 24% believing abortion should be allowed in most or all cases. For faithful women of color, there's often a very different balancing act of values when confronting the question of whether women should be able to end unwanted pregnancies. Hello, boys and girls. Can you say social gospel? Sure you can. Okay, for the sake of time, let me sum up the rest of this article. And I really, I mean, really encourage you to read this one. It's horrifying and fascinating. 
They, of course, bring in the personal anecdotes because that's the only appeal the left has, emotion. They have no real facts to stand on, no logic, just emotion. They trot out a pregnant woman that's also got cancer. She can't take chemo to save her life if she continues the pregnancy. That's life of the mother if you're scoring at home. Then they talk about a 13-year-old rape victim, scared, blank-eyed. She's reassured that she didn't do anything wrong. And as hard as it may be to say it, you really kind of need to add on to the end of that, uh, yet. So that's rape and a child if you're, you know, keeping tally. So where do we go? Well, let's start here at the end and work our way back up. Rape, incest, life of mother. All total, that accounts for about 1% of abortions. As I've said before, if we eliminate all but that, that's a great first step. I've also said, and for now, this is how I believe your view may differ, when it comes to life of mother. That's the only time, in my opinion, it becomes a medical discussion. For instance, an ectopic pregnancy. If that pregnancy is terminated, is it killing a child? Yeah, absolutely it is. But that child has already been given a death sentence and could very likely kill the mother as well. There is no medical option. Outside of a miracle, both will die. Another woman with cancer. If she were to die before the baby is viable, they both die. Again, what's the point of continuing the pregnancy? I think that life of mother cases need to be handled one at a time and analyzed very carefully. In some cases, there is not a winning situation. And I can console myself with knowing that the child that was killed will be in heaven. Unfortunately, scenarios come up like this because we live in a world that is cursed by sin. Fortunately, life of mother is about 0.1% of abortions. I think I said 1% in a previous episode, but I did my math wrong, which doesn't bode well for an engineer. But I'm sure I've done all my other sums correctly. Then we move to rape and incest. That's about 0.7% of abortions. Now, I had one genius tell me, yeah, but there are a lot of pregnancies from rapes that go unreported. Okay, but, but literally right now, they can go get an abortion, no questions asked, and yet we're still under 1%. So not sure what your point is. What this 13-year-old girl needs is not to be coaxed into murder. It's to be told the truth. It's to be loved and assured that everything will be okay. There is absolutely no need for her to add murder to her young conscience. And trust me, at some point, she will struggle with that realization. Ms. Cotton, I think, made the most accurate points. The most poignant being, you don't get to tell me what to do. And there it is. Ironically, she said this right after she admitted the knowledge of the body being the temple of God. Now, that's if you're saved, and I'm guessing that Ms. Cotton is uh, not as saved as she thinks she is. Recall, she said in the same breath, quote, when people talk about the body being a temple of God, you have purview over your body. There's nothing more sacred. Okay, so because your body is the temple of God, you have control. Shouldn't God be in control? I know that as humans, we sin all the time. It's, it's what we do. But to simply admit, then deny who the owner of your body is in one sentence it's, frankly, that's astonishing. But this is the false gospel that's floating through the evangelical world. That's why a growing group of Christians are eschewing the moniker of evangelical. That term has become tainted, and it's getting worse. And recall, Ms. Horton, who is openly confused as to what Bible the protesters outside are reading, because it's certainly not the one she's reading, I have little doubt that that's true. So here's what we're dealing with. The Bible, the gospel itself, has been corrupted. If you turn on TBN or Daystar or any other 
mainstream quasi-Christian stations, first, what's wrong with you? But second, you'll find TED Talks. You'll find modern-day prophets prophesying away about nonsense, getting most things wrong. You'll find charlatans. You'll find wolves. You'll find motivational speeches. You'll find trendy sermon series. You'll find tips and tricks on how to have your best life now. You'll find law after law after law. But let me point out, the only people, the only people that have their best life now are those that are going to hell. For the few, and I think very few, that are truly saved, this world is the worst possible part of our existence. No matter how good you feel like you've got it right now, if you're saved, this is quite literally our hell. This is the worst we'll ever have it. And then paradise. Back to these Christian stations that none of you should even waste the battery power in the remote or the tenth of a calorie burn to move your finger to turn on, what you'll never find is frank biblical teaching on sin, on the law, on grace, on the cross, on hell, on salvation, on damnation. They don't talk about those things. The reason people like Ms. Horton can't understand what Bible is being read by the protesters, that they seem to not be reading the same Bible, is simply because they aren't. They're reading the parts they're told to read. She's reading it from the lens that she's been told to read it through. And then when you throw in the social gospel and all of the garbage that we now know as critical race theory, the black population, the black church, is in a lot of trouble. And that's absolutely heartbreaking, as that culture has such a robust history of biblical faithfulness. But it's been hijacked. When Ms. Cotton gave the stat that nearly 70% of black Protestants believe abortion should be legal in most or all cases, that's horrifying. It's horrifying from an abortion perspective, but it's even more horrifying from a salvation perspective. Now, I'm not God. I'm not able to judge the heart of anyone. But we do know that by their fruit we'll know them. We all sin. Saved and unsaved, we sin. Most of us will go through some dark, deep valley in our lives, extended periods of rebellion and sin. But once saved, legitimately saved, no period of sin will take that salvation away. We are safe not only in the palm of Jesus, but the Father's hands are wrapped around that as well. We are secure. That being said, these women are not saved. These women of alleged faith are not Christians. These women will be those of which will be astonished at the final judgment. Did we not read our Bibles? Did we not go to church? Did we not tell others about you? They deny that inside every pregnant woman from the moment of conception is an image bearer of God, a unique creation, one that is being knit together by God from the first second. They deny the Bible. I honestly can't understand how they don't grasp that, or if they do, how they don't care. I've had some debates of recent on Facebook, and admittedly, I'm pretty sharp in some of these, probably too much so. It's crazed women. But one of the most refreshing responses I can get back is, I know it's alive, I know it's a baby, it's my body, I'll kill it if I want. The few that have the guts to admit that, I've actually seriously thanked them. At least they're honest and aware of what they're doing. The rest are either blind, self-imposed, probably, or too lazy to look up the reality, or too selfish to even care if it is or isn't alive. Those are the frustrating ones. I had one woman arguing that it's not murder because the law doesn't define it as murder. Yeah, but the Bible does. Human law is not perfect. It's tainted by sin as well. God's law is perfect. I kind of think that should be our ultimate standard. These women, regardless of what they profess, if they are unrepentant in their sin, and make no mistake, taking the life of an unborn child, that is sin. 
I think it's personally a very grievous sin. If they're living a life of unrepentance, they are not saved. If they believe in a Jesus that's not in the Bible, they're not saved. If they're believing a gospel that's not in the Bible, they're not saved. If they're reading a Bible that's not the Bible, they're not saved. It's by definition impossible. You cannot believe a different gospel, believe in a Jesus the likes of which never existed, and live in unrepentant sin and be saved. It's as simple as that. So all that said, my friends, prepare yourself. This is a Pandora's box. Although a reversal and nullification of Roe doesn't ban anything, it does allow states to decide to ban abortion with whatever boundaries they choose. It also allows states to allow abortion with any boundaries they choose. The clashes, the anger, the contention being seen right now will be nothing compared to the evil that will be unleashed if Roe is finally overturned. And it really doesn't matter what the reality of an overturning of Roe does. They don't care. This isn't about reality. This is about perception of reality. It will literally unleash pure evil. It's the right thing to do, but be ready. You will see legitimately demon-possessed people going absolutely apoplectic. You will see unbridled rage and hatred. Now look, as I kind of assumed I would, I've done an injustice to trying to review this article. Go back and read it. Think every point completely through. Then pray for protection and courage for our justices. Pray for courage in the states, especially if Rose nullified. Pray for this country. It's on a razor's edge. Pray for your pastor and faithful pastors all around the country. If you're following pastors or going to church with a pastor that's not preaching the whole Bible, even the squidgy bits, get out. Get away. Find a pastor that's unafraid to stand for the whole of the Bible and preaches the true gospel. And then pray for yourself. If you're pro-life, anti-abortion, pray for your own strength to stand strong for what you believe. If you're pro-choice, pro-abortion, I don't know how you've made it this long, but if you are and you're here, search your heart, your soul, your mind, and your Bible. At best, you're living in grievous, grievous sin. At worst, and in my opinion, based on what I read in the Bible, you're not saved. You can be. It takes humbling yourself. It takes repentance. It takes real belief in the real Jesus. And if you're pro-abortion, I don't believe that both things can exist in a person at the same time. Maybe that's one of the real positives that will come out of yet another burnishing of our country in purifying fire. It will force at least some to, in the words of Joshua, choose you this day whom you will serve. As of October 31st, 2022, somehow, only a few months away, it'll be Halloween. But maybe slightly more important than that, it'll be 505 years since Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg. For the subset of people that even knows who that was or what that event was, the general thought is that that was the day Luther declared war on Catholics and vowed to take the whole corrupt organization down. But that's not exactly correct. Or correct at all, really. First, nailing the thesis on the door was akin to posting something on the town square bulletin board. It wasn't defiant, it was posting. Second, the thesis wasn't a challenge to the authority of the Catholic system or leadership. It was an honest assessment of what Luther considered to be errors and questions about discrepancies that he found when comparing the Bible to the Catholic system. Third, Luther had no interest in taking out Catholicism or starting a new religion, at least when he posted it. His interest was to bring to their attention that there were some problems between the two because he innocently thought 
that maybe they didn't know, and he wanted to try to help fix the problems, as he knew they'd want to fix them as soon as they found out about them. Long story short, Luther had a rude awakening, and regardless of his intent, the Protestant Reformation began, and I, for one, am thankful for it. But as the law of entropy states, which, by the way, only started once Adam took a bite of that fruit, all things tend toward disorder. Paint fades in the sun, metal rusts, bodies fail, all because time marches on and systems break down. The same, it appears, can be said for religious systems. Now take note, I said these systems fail, not the object of our faith. We know that the Bible tells us Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And also that the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And then we have both concepts clearly stated in Psalm 102, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away, but you are the same, and your years have no end. So I give all this background to say this. I've thought for a handful of years now that we are in desperate need of yet another Protestant Reformation. Maybe like uh, Protestant Reformation Part 2, right? The sequel. See, we've screwed up what was fought so hard for back then. This is why we see so many charismatic churches that feature nonsensical babbling, rolling on the floor, laughing uncontrollably, and obviously fake healings. This is why we have so many so-called churches that do nothing but preach health and wealth. Just sow a seed. Just have enough faith. Just follow all our rules and you too can be rich. God wants you rich. It's your lack of faith, your failures that are screwing up God's plans. Most of those two types of churches I just mentioned can be seen for what they are. They're just unbiblical. They're scams. They're obvious. Even more nefarious, I think, are these churches that are much harder to see that they're, at the very least, very problematic. At worst, they're downright dangerous. You can identify these churches by basically two things. First, they mostly preach about you. The so-called messages that they do preach put you in the story. Think about how you're David and whatever problem you're facing is your Goliath. The messages give you three easy steps to get whatever result you're looking for. And they preach almost exclusively New Testament, except for when they can hijack Old Testament stories like David and Goliath. They preach almost exclusively a doctrine of love, painting a picture of a loving Jesus who just wants you to have your best life. And they rarely, if ever, speak of sin, hell, repentance, and if they touch the gospel at all, it's basically that Jesus loves you so much, oh, he just can't live without you. So won't you do him the favor of just, just allowing him to be part of your life? And this is nothing like what the gospel actually is. But this is what people for a number of generations now have been told and taught. And the Protestant Reformation is tending toward disorder. People aren't reading their Bibles. They're not seeking out solid, sound Bible teachers. They're content with having their itching ears scratched. And that brings us to our article. Found on the postmillennial.com headline, Chief Bush Cheney Advisor, quote, If Jesus Christ was alive today, he would be called a groomer. Okay. 
So a former top advisor, Matthew Dowd, while being interviewed on MSNBC's Deadline White House, made this claim, quote, the Easter holidays, the entire message of the Gospels of the Easter holidays was love one another. And I have said this before, and I'll say it again. If Jesus Christ was alive today, he would be called a groomer. He would be called woke. And he would be called a socialist if he was alive today. And he went on to say, if he was speaking the message he spoke in the Gospels today about treating everybody with dignity, Jesus Christ hung around with prostitutes and tax collectors. He was nailed to a cross because he spoke on behalf of the most marginalized people in the Middle East. <sighs> Unfortunately, he continued, And the idea that a certain segment of the population has tried to capture the faith and corrupt a message that I may have been a follower of since I was baptized and was confirmed and served on the altar in the course of this is something I think all of us it's not just people of faith, but whether Christian, Hindu, Buddhist, or don't have a faith, the message of love conquers hate is a message we should be pushing, but especially Christians in the country that can't stand what happened to our faith. And of course, as he's saying this, they put the four-way split screen up and we see smiling, nodding faces of the other three talking heads. So there you go. Oh, this was all in reference basically to the so-called don't say gay bill in Florida. <sighs> so I've covered the don't say gay bill, so-called, all the way back in episode seven. And, you know, how that's a stupid name and the arguments are stupid, as neither the name nor the arguments have anything at all to do with the actual law. And once people of all worldviews actually read the law, a vast majority agrees with what it says and does. But of course, this top advisor of the uber-conservative Bush era he is running for the Democrat nod for lieutenant governor of Texas. Now, I'd like to say that this guy is, you know, just off his rocker, but this view, this understanding of the Bible isn't anything unique. It sounds as if he's got a Catholic background to me, but, but everything I said about needing another Protestant Reformation, about Christianity breaking down, it's been slower coming, but it applies to Catholicism as well. It's just not as advanced yet in its destruction like it is with Protestantism, but they're catching up fast. So let's take a few minutes and break down his comments piece by piece as he has approximately 99% of his statements, you know, biblically wrong. Let's start here. He stresses, if Jesus were alive today, yes, now look, I understand that what he means, I, I think, what he, what he probably, what he hopefully means is that if Jesus were walking on the earth as he did 2,000 years ago, but that statement is indicative of part of the problem. Jesus isn't considered alive or relevant these days, beyond being a historical figure and a teacher and, you know, an all-around good fella. For all intents and purposes, in the eyes of many Christians, out of sight, out of mind. What I find ironic is that Dowd started his comments with the Easter holidays. You know, the one time every year that we specifically commemorate the resurrection of Jesus, not as some, you know, Jesus the friendly ghost. No, flesh and blood, living, breathing, eating, fully God, fully man. In fact, he appeared as a living being, flesh and blood, to all the apostles, to other disciples, to the women, and to a large crowd. There's no question that he's very much alive today. And as I've covered in the intro to this article, Jesus doesn't change. So he's the same today as he was back then, which means we can evaluate him accurately today based on what he did and said then. 
In fact, Christianity is also the only religion that claims that their prophet is alive. Remember, they were able to back that up at the time, meaning that we can fall back on the testimony of witnesses, some of which were brutally killed for their testimony. Now, all other religions claim gods, but their prophets are now nothing but dust. Jesus, our perfect prophet, priest, and king, is alive. Let's move on. Quote, the entire message of the Gospels of Easter holidays was love one another. Okay, wow, with a silver tongue like that, it's easy to see why he's a politician. I mean, not only is that wrong, it's nearly indecipherable. All right, first, there is no such thing as Gospels of the Easter holidays. Now, I'll cover his view of the Gospel in a few minutes, but there is literally only one Gospel. It's the same on every holiday and every day for every person in every country in all of history. It's even woven throughout the Old Testament, with the New Testament being the uh, decoder ring, to say it simply and hopefully not heretically, to understand what's really going on in the Old. Second, there is no Easter holidays. Just the one, just, just the one, one holiday. Maybe he meant to say the Easter season or something. But he didn't, so I'll play Grammar Nazi on this one because it's my podcast. Third, the Easter message was not love one another. Now, in the Easter story, in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, at the Last Supper, after Jesus had revealed to Judas that he knew he was going to betray him and Judas left, Jesus addressed the other apostles. He told them that he was going, and where he was going, they were not going to be able to come. So he was not going to be there physically anymore as their leader, their rabbi. His time on earth was coming to a close, which meant their time of training was about over. As we know, the apostles were given the ability to perform miracles, not to impress, not for their own glory, for one reason only, to show that they were representing that they are the apostles of the one true God. They were also given the instruction, and this is one that extends to all of God's children, you know, all who are truly saved, quote, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We can show the dying world who we are by showing our love as the family of God. So this message was in what we call the Easter story. But this was not the message of the, quote, Easter holidays. Now let's look at his three major claims. Jesus today would be called a groomer. Now look, he's only saying this because of the very, very recent use of the term groomer. The political right has finally found something that really ticks off the political left while being pretty accurate at the same time. This really stems from that so-called, so wrongly called, don't say gay bill in Florida. Like I said, I've covered this previously, so I won't do it again, but the bottom line is that the bill was saying teachers can't talk to elementary age kids about sex and sexuality, and teachers can't indoctrinate any student with only one-sided messages. They must present and allow fair and balanced discussions on topics. Anyway, with corporations like Disney and Netflix, as well as most of the corporate media, most celebrities, and a never-ending list of people all whining about the bill, boldly lying about what the law actually says... Additionally, with the latest trends of putting trannies everywhere, you know, like libraries, schools, churches, being given full access to our kids, the right started calling the left groomers. Now, they only started doing that because, um, because that's exactly what they're doing. 
In fact, Fisher-Price just announced a RuPaul, you know, one of the most famous men dressing up like women, little people set, you know, for little kids. They're absolutely trying to groom kids for sex, for homosexuality, or for transgenderism. If they can't kill them pre- or even post-birth, they want to destroy them physically and psychologically. Groomers. Dowd, because he has no idea who Jesus is or what he said or did, thinks that Jesus was all about love, loving everyone. No matter who or what you are, he just accepts everyone. Now, if Jesus actually did do what he thinks he does, then I'd agree. We'd have grounds to call him a groomer. Problem is, this has never happened. One of the most common Greek words for this kind of sexual deviancy is porneia. You can hear the word pornography in there, which is part of it, but it's an all-encompassing word for pretty much all sexual sin, including adultery, fornication, homosexuality, lesbianism, bestiality, incest, etc. This word is used 26 times in the New Testament, including at least a couple times attributed directly to Jesus. He likened pornea to evil thoughts, murder, theft, lying, and blasphemy, all coming from the wicked heart of man. Nowhere in the Bible is sexual deviancy treated as a good or even acceptable practice. And nowhere in the Bible does it say that we should just let people be people, kids be kids, just accept everything and everyone. This in every case was called out as sin, sin that needed to be repented of, sin that will condemn a person to an eternal torment in hell if not repented for. Dowd just has no idea what he's talking about. Next, he said that Jesus would be considered woke. Now, this one, in a very broad definition, I could kind of get behind. We consider woke to be enlightened beyond the old traditions, the old rules, beyond the old morals, and definitely beyond religion. Uh, Jesus was not that. In fact, he clearly said that he was not there to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He was not trying to move anyone past the Old Testament, you know, so that we could unhitch the Old Testament. He was revealing the truth of the Old Testament, which is still very applicable today, just in a different way than it was then. So by Dowd's definition, no, Jesus was not woke. From a very broad definition, yeah, I mean, Jesus was revealing very new, and depending on who you were, very controversial information. He was absolutely turning the current system on its head, but that's because the current system at that time was so far outside of what God had set up that simply bringing the people, the leaders, you know, like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests, back to the law and the prophets, you know, the scriptures, he would absolutely appear to be woke. Finally, the old trope of Jesus would be a socialist. Would he, though? Here's my probably shocking thought. I'd say... Yeah, Jesus would be a socialist, but not in our current sin-corrupted world as in our current sinful state. All we can do with socialism right now is starve, destroy, and kill. That's where it ends up every time. Now, I've thought about this in the past, and I've kind of semi-convinced myself that the system in the garden, if sin had never entered the world, would have been a kind of theocratic socialism. At its core, the single tenet of socialism is from each according to his ability to each according to his need. If sin had never entered the garden, wouldn't that have been the way it would have been? We would work and contribute with whatever abilities God has blessed us with, and we would have utilized the resources for our needs, not our selfish desires. That's not what Dowd meant, though. Socialism in our sin-cursed world is a strong man, the person in power he takes, and then he doles out to everyone as he sees fit. 
typically enriching himself in the process while bringing the common man, you know, you and me, to a point of equality, but equal in our general poverty and malaise. Nowhere in the Bible do we see some sort of uh, socialist society, and we definitely do not see Jesus advocating for a form of socialism. In fact, quite the opposite. For instance, just prior to the arrest of Jesus, a woman, of whom there is speculation as to the identity, broke an alabaster jar of pure nard and anointed Jesus. This is where some believe that Judas really got angry because he saw the money that was just wasted. Whoever it was, there was grumbling among the apostles about the waste of money and how it could have been sold and used to help the poor. Jesus rebuked them and told them what she did was good and right, and that they'd always have the poor among them. That's not a socialist view, as there is no rich and there is no poor in socialism. In fact, we see that all the way back in Exodus. After Moses got instructions for constructing the tabernacle, he called for free will offerings from the people of gold, silver, bronze, spices, incense, oils, fabrics, wood, and on and on. Not one person was told they must contribute. And Moses ended up having to cut them off because they gave so much that it was too much. But it was their choice. They were not forced to give. People like to point to the Acts 2 church, the first family of believers, and how they apparently just lived in a hippie commune where nobody had private property or privacy or anything. Well, that's not what the scriptures say. It says, quote, And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So, first we see that they had their own homes. Second, we see nothing about how they were made to give up their private property for the good of the collective. Rather, they shared their belongings. And as need for money arose, those with property would sell what they could to try to meet the need. Again, this was not mandatory. This was all voluntary. So, uh, so not socialism. In fact, we see the other side of this played out in Acts 5 with Ananias and Sapphira, a husband and wife who sold a piece of property, keeping back part of the money for themselves and giving the rest. Now, Ananias was struck down by God, you know, struck dead by God, because he didn't give the full proceeds. And then Sapphira was also killed by an angry socialist God, because she also didn't bring the rest of the money they were required to give. Well, except no. It doesn't say, but from Peter's response, the implication is that Ananias brought some of the money from the sale and must have made the claim that it was all the money. And I would expect that he probably did this to puff himself up as one of the best, one of the most sacrificial. Peter, however, knew that Ananias had kept some of the money back and said, How is it that Satan has so filled your heart, and that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. And then Sapphira, she knew exactly what they were trying to pull off. She came to Peter, probably looking for her husband, because, you know, he hadn't made it home yet. And Peter asked her if that was the full amount, to which she lied and died also. They didn't die because they held money back as it was completely up to them how they wanted to handle the proceeds of the sale. They died because they lied to God. So uh, so this is not socialism. 
Jesus was asked by the Pharisees if they should pay taxes. His answer was for him to be shown a coin and make the statement that the money had Caesar's image on it. So give him what's his and give God what's God's. So what is God's? Well, his children are his. All glory is his. All praise is his. All worship is his. Jesus was not concerned with the earthly money at all. Uh, Not socialism. Finally, and there are many other examples, Paul in 2 Corinthians talks about giving. Unlike what most pastors will claim today, tithing is not a New Testament thing. I have no problem if you want to do that, or more, or less. I think a 10% tithe is a great place to start. But a 10% tithe is only about one-third of what the actual Old Testament tithe consisted of. And it's not a mandatory thing under the New Covenant. The actual tithe in the Old Testament was mandatory, but it it's basically the same as taxes today. It paid for a variety of things, but mostly it was for the Levites since they were not allowed to own land and work in a way to make a living. They were prohibited by God from doing so as they were a set-apart people with a very specific job. Back to Paul, he said, quote, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So, uh, so this is not socialism. The social argument is dead on arrival. I don't know why they keep marching that one out there, but not only would Jesus not be a groomer, he would not be a socialist, and he would not be woke, per Dow's definition. Finally, I'm going to wrap up the other three things that Dowd claimed because they all have to do with the gospel. The real one, not whatever Dowd thinks it is. So he made the following claims. The gospel is treating everyone with dignity. Jesus was hung on the cross because he spoke on behalf of marginalized people in the Middle East and love conquers hate. These are all wrong, badly wrong, stupidly wrong, in fact. Jesus was hung on the cross from a human standpoint because he was causing problems for those in positions of power. They saw their grip of power, they saw their source of money drying up if what this uh, Jesus was saying got out to the people. They did not want him around. Now, from an ultimate view, Jesus was hung on that cross because this was the plan since before creation. The gospel is all about Jesus. It's not about us. It's not about treating people with dignity or treating people in any way. The only thing we contribute to the gospel is that we are the wretched, hellbound, dead in our sins sinners. We are the people that need to be rescued, and that's it. The gospel is that before creation, the plan was already done. God sent his son Jesus to be the perfect, sinless blood sacrifice for all those that God the Father had given him at exactly the right time in history. As there was nothing we could contribute but sin, Jesus lived perfectly and died unjustly, and in doing so, was able to credit his righteousness to us as he took our sin on himself. His death paid the infinite penalty we owed. His resurrection destroyed the grip of death and hell on those that are saved. And even in our salvation, we contribute nothing. For by grace we are saved through faith, and that faith, that's not even our own. It's a gift given to us by God. Nothing we can do could be enough to earn it for ourselves. And if we had a hand in this in any way, that would do nothing but glorify ourselves. This is all a gift from God that we simply need to receive, repent, and believe. That's it. The problem doubt has is the same as many, many evangelicals have today. And like I said, the Catholics are catching up fast. The gospel and Jesus have been reduced to one word, love. Churches, too many churches, have removed hell, sin, repentance, wretchedness, enemies of God, haters of God, dead in sin, and turned our sin into oopsies and mistakes. But that's okay because Jesus, unlike that cranky old man in the Old Testament that we just don't need anymore, Jesus is all about love and acceptance. 
He just wants you to live your best life now. He's got your picture on his fridge and just goes gaga when he looks at it. In fact, the song he's got on repeat on his disc man is uh, I Can't Live If Living Is Without You. The Mariah Carey version, of course. And because we've watered down the gospel and Jesus to this milk toast, half drugged out hippie Jesus who just loves everyone and says as much with a goofy grin on his face, we get people like Dowd, who has no idea what he's talking about, but is unafraid to make bold, blasphemous claims about a Jesus he purports to know, but clearly doesn't. Jesus is perfect love, but he is also perfect justice, perfect holiness, perfect everything. This means that there is only one way to heaven. That's salvation through him. There is right and wrong. There is a single unchanging truth. There is sin and a penalty for that sin. But God, in his perfect love, offered his son, and Jesus, because of his perfect love, paid that penalty, but only for those that believe. Jesus will accept everyone from all walks of life with all kinds of sin credited to their account, but not if we are unrepentant, not if we don't humble ourselves, bow the knee, come to a realization that we are completely lost and helpless and in desperate need of rescue. My prayer would be that Dowd gets this figured out. But I have a feeling he has no interest, as the love gospel is all he needs to feel comfortable in this life, with his life choices, with those he's wanting votes from. Unfortunately, this trend is only burdening people with guilt that they have no idea what to do with. Impossible tasks to complete, freedom to live destructive lifestyles, and ultimately an eternity in hell because they were never told and chose to never read what the gospel truly is. So I'll close with this. Make sure you know. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com or increasingly I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.